I'm contacted often by people who want to get into it, and they may be in high school, they may be in college, or just out of college. I'm sort of alarmed when the first thing they say to me is, I love shopping. Can you show me how to become a stylist? I've always wanted to be one. And it's not just shopping. Sometimes it's not shopping at all. It's using your visual sense. And there is an element, you know, of shopping to the job, but it's not just about shopping. You really have to be an artist designer inside. This is Professional Confessionals. We're joined today by stylist Raquel Vidal. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us, Raquel. Thank you for having me. Let's dive right in. First, please explain what a stylist does. Okay, a photo stylist, because there are many different kinds, and I often get confused with others. A photo stylist, which I am, goes on photo shoots for the commercial world or video shoots or film shoots and makes sure that whatever the camera sees looks great. Tell us about your professional journey. Where did you go to school and what did you plan to pursue? Okay, I went to Rhode Island School of Design, a.k.a. RISD, and I was an apparel design major, um, which, you know, is fashion design at any other school, but it's an art school, so they like to say apparel to leave it open for art-to-wear students. And the first year I spent in fine arts, like all RISD students do, and I think Parsons and some other schools do that as well, maybe Pratt, their philosophy is that you're an artist and designer first, and you need all of the visual background before you go into your major. So whatever you become after your freshman year, an architect or a graphic designer or a filmmaker or a fashion designer, you need that visual core in your education. So that's their philosophy. And I strongly believe that that's important. And so out of RISD, what did you pursue specifically? So after RISD, I went to New York and I looked for work and I found an assistant design position at a couple places, first freelance, and then I was on staff at a sweater, a knitwear company. And I was pretty disappointed in the industry when I saw it up close. It was a big, big disappointment for me because I had these grand ideas that I'd be the next thing. I was very up on design trends and had developed my own style. And I was really excited about showing the world what I had. And no one wanted to hear it. They just wanted you to copy some sweater or creation that had been done before and make it in a different color. So, and I found I was living with other design majors that I graduated with in this apartment in uh, next to Hoboken. And uh, we were all commuting into our fashion design assistant jobs at different companies. And we were coming back to dinner and telling the same stories. And I said, I don't know if I want this to be my life. I was really confused. And I was in a very not friendly work environment. It was a it was a toxic work environment, the particular company I was in. So it was an easy decision for me. And I decided I'm not supposed to be a fashion designer. I'm supposed to be a shoe designer. So I quit my job, much to my family's dismay, without another job to go to. And I was just exploring my passion still. You know, here I'm, you know, 22 or 23. 
And I, I said, I, you know, I just can't take it. I can't take it. I don't want to have this story after work every day for the rest of my career. My family didn't quite understand it, and they were kind of mad at me about it. So I said, well, I'm going to go. I have a plan. I'm going to go to FIT and become a shoe designer. And so I enrolled in FIT. I got accepted, and I was going to go into this two-year course, but I had about 10 months to work. And so I started temping, and I got a job one day at Vogue magazine in their fashion department because the temp agency said, oh, look, you have a fashion background. You can work at Vogue. And I said, great. That sounds like fun. So I was supposed to be there two or three weeks, and I was there six weeks. And I said to my temp agency, please, please put me in any job at Condé Nast after this that you get until September when school starts. So they did. So I was at Vanity Fair a day, GQ a day, Mademoiselle a week, two weeks, three weeks, two months. And then they offered me a job right before, five days before I was going to go back to school as a fashion assistant in their fashion department. And that's where all the photo shoots took place. And I had already been on shoots with them, helping their assistants. And it was a hot magazine at the time. And it's now defunct after, you know, it was in operation for like 50 or 75 years. But magazines took a hit. But I was there for a couple of, you know, two or three years. And I just fell in love with being on set and applied my skills visually that way. It was, to me far more creative than design was at the time. And it sounds like there's a more immediacy to it. Yes, yes. It's it's good for people with short attention spans, perhaps, I would say that. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, your client could change if, you know, if your client could change every week or your crew could change every day, depending on the job. So, you know, you could be working for one client for three days and then... You're working with someone else, you know, the next week or the next day. And that helps me just, I I love that. I love, it sparks my interest because there's a new visual problem to solve or something to convey visually every week. So I like that. It sounds fascinating. And do do you travel a lot? You can. Since I've been raising a daughter, I've opted not to so much. And that's what's wonderful, too, is that the work enables you to be flexible. And I'm self-employed. I've gone in many different directions during the course of my career. And I traveled and traveled and traveled and traveled when I first left the magazine. Well, I, I traveled it at the magazine. We traveled all over the country. Then I left. I went to Boston because of a relationship. Uh, like who who leaves New York to become a stylist and then goes to Boston and does it? I do. I just you know, and <laughs> little did I know it was going to be a great mistake because Boston had a very thriving small market, and immediately I was this girl from Condé Nast who had this magazine experience and had a portfolio of New York photographers that I just put together on the side on my my own with clothes from showrooms. So I immediately became the it girl in Boston and had an agent and, you know, an agency representing me that was very reputable. And I got all these, you know, jobs, advertising and catalog. And I traveled all over the place for three solid years. And I went back to New York when the relationship didn't work out, but the career (laughs) did. So, you know, then I continued. It was like earning my wings, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Right. So you came back to New York kind of 
with an elevated status in terms of because you had yes it was accumulated uh, more it for got your- me in if i had stayed in new york at the time as some of my friends had i would have probably still been assisting it would have been hard to move to the next level mm-hmm. and to be a, a stylist it would have taken longer I didn't even know it, but I made a really good mistake for my career because when I got to Boston, you know, when I started and, you know, went to Boston, they said, oh, great here, you know, you can style these, you know, this catalog and you can do this ad and you can do this, just assuming I knew what I was doing. And I just faked it until I made it. I said, oh, okay. Um, All right, I'll figure this out and keep my mouth shut. And, and I did, (laughs) and I did figure it out. So when I went back to New York, I was much more confident and that that really helped me. That really helped me to have that experience and uh, those connections. That's really interesting because you said you faked it until you made it. Mm-hmm. So, but you had to have some level of confidence within yourself even to take that step of saying, "All right, I'm going to figure it out." That's a good point to bring up because for anyone wanting to go into that field, I would say the reason I was able to fake it was because of my foundation at RISD. My foundation in tailoring and sewing and solving those problems with a garment. Because I was a fashion stylist um, in those days only, I was on set with models, getting them dressed for, say, a catalog shoot and accessorizing them and making those choices. And because I had had that background visually in a fashion design you know, school, I was able to make those decisions pretty effortlessly. There wasn't a lot of faking it. I just had to act like I was confident, I think, more than anything. I think it was really good. You know, if, if a hemline looked funny and was got hung up, I could tell that the coat would have a problem. I'd look at it and say, oh, well, the lining is too short. Let me open the seam up and it'll look great in front of the camera. I knew that and I knew instinctively how to pin things and clamp things and make them look like they were actually the model's size because I had done draping on figure for so many years. So a lot of that was just, oh, yeah, I know how to do that. So it is a good thing to have a background in fashion design if you're going into fashion styling. Right. So even though you hadn't held the title or the position, you had the foundation to be able to implement what you needed to implement on the fly. Yes. Yes. It was really good experience. A lot of people now think I'm contacted often by people who want to get into it and they may be in high school, they may be in college or just out of college. And I'm, I'm sort of alarmed when the first thing they say to me is, I love shopping. Can you show me how to become a stylist? I've always wanted to be one. And it's not just shopping. Sometimes it's not shopping at all. Um, it's choosing and use, using your visual sense. And there is an element you know, of shopping to the job, but it's not just about shopping. You really have to be an artist designer inside and know your color, your color palette and what works and proportions and line. And, and then to have all of the pop culture, you know, references, if you're going into fashion, high fashion, you have to have that all down, those visual references that are relevant if you're going into that echelon of fashion styling. A lot of people think that it's just all shopping. So I would just say, learn how to sew, learn how to design, learn how to draw, learn how to use your visual sense and refine your eye, because that's going to come in handy every single day. 
going back to choosing a career, did mm. your parents influence your career choice at all? Without knowing, I think my mother influenced my career choice because she was a really sharp dresser. She loved clothing and she knew how to sew. And she later became a costume designer after I had, uh, after she retired, actually. She was a Spanish teacher my whole childhood. And then 56, she retired and started designing and sewing costumes in our regional theater in town. That was interesting. And my grandmother loved to dress me. When I was little, she loved to take me to the best stores and spoil me with clothing. So I got teased when I was like 11 because I didn't own jeans. It was a real hardship, you know. But <laughs> um, my grandmother, you know, would treat me to like Italian knitted outfits. And it was a little little bit high end for my school on Long Island. And I got teased, you know, because... My grandmother indulged me every September. They were just school. jealous. <laughs> <laughs> I was called a nerd because I didn't have Levi's in, in sixth grade. So, but I had Italian pico knit sweater sets and, you know, it was very, very cute. When I look back, then I was embarrassed. I got very ashamed of my clothes. Oh. Just Crazy. a big problem to have. Yeah. So within the fashion realm. Who were your role models? Who did you look up to within the industry? Audrey Hepburn was always visually, you know, she she was and is eternally the it girl for so many people for that kind of chic sense of style. You know, I had I had so many favorites like through design school. I followed Japanese designers because it was the late 80s and that was all happening. You know, Ray Kawakubo and Comme des Garçons and Matsuda. I followed the, that movement. I followed the British designers. I just kind of tapped into what was going on and who was doing great things. And it's evolved and changed. And now I'm more a fan of everyday people who put their looks together and express themselves through their clothing. So I look at it quite differently now. Were there key moments in your career that lifted your skill level I've been a stylist, not only clothing, but I've had so many different iterations of being a stylist where I've, I've had clients or photographers for a few years who were doing one thing. So I would do a lot of jobs of that sort, whatever their specialty was. And then I moved to something else and it was fun. It was fun because I had one photographer who did a lot of sports celebrities so for maybe three year period, I was going to LA to, you know, help Shaq with his outfit or having clothes made for Shaq. I did a bunch of things with him and a bunch of sports celebrities, Cal Ripken Jr. and Oscar De La Hoya and Roy Jones Jr. Um, so Felix Trinidad for HBO for a boxing event. So I had all these sports celebrities with him. But then I also had, I had an outdoorsy period where I did L.L. Bean and went on their catalog shoots in Maine and we drove around. And um, so I had all of these, these skills would be built up by the clients themselves and by the jobs because I would draw on something else. And then I'd say, oh, that's how you do that. Now I know that when I'm in the woods uh, and I need my styling supplies, I make sure I have a waste pack to hold my pin box and my clamps. Oh, that's how you do that. I, I would be problem solving and evolving as I had different kinds of jobs. 
or, you know, on-set studio stylist, stylist stuff, still life, etc. Do you do much photography yourself, fashion photography? I like, I like to use my iPhone camera. <laughs> I have a current iPhone. I love taking pictures and playing with them and using my Snapseed app. But now I sort of leave that to somebody else. But I love, I love taking pictures. I'm almost scared to wear the mantle of photographer because I have such respect for photographers. And I've seen a lot of people go from stylist or hair and makeup to photography. And I've sort of looked down on them because, oh, they didn't go through four years of photography. I have total respect for photographers who know how to light and know about, you know, the technical end of things and darkroom techniques. So I would never assume to know more than they do. So I I think it humbled me to be in this industry. You know, I have such respect. And I was married to a photographer too, who was at Avedon Studio. So full respect for that, you know, that whole end of things. Is there anything that surprised you about being a stylist? Any misconceptions that you'd like to dispel? I think maybe one of the surprises has been how many hats I've had to wear because um, budgets being what they are, people are always looking for a deal. And I never say no. I always say, sure, I can do that too. And then sometimes I regret saying yes to things because I've been, now that I look back at a 30-year career, I have done so much. Now I say no a lot more to the extra hats they have asked me to wear, but I've produced shoots and styled them at the same time and done the sets at the same time. I will never do that again. I did that when I was really wet behind the ears and just looking for some extra cash Mm -hmm. on jobs. I didn't ask for enough, perhaps like enough help on those jobs when I had to A lot of times they would just say, oh, we just need a chair or something. Can't you style the wardrobe for this ad and also, you know, just bring a chair and maybe a couple of small props. So I said, (laughs) "Okay, I'll do, you know, light propping for this. And then it turned into lots of phone calls with the ad agency where they kept adding and adding and adding until I realized I, I did some Colgate or I think it was a Colgate or toothpaste ad, print ad, and I had created a living room. And I was trying to move the couch into position and shouting over to my assistant to get the next outfit steamed. So it was it it was just crazy. So I didn't know. And I've powdered, you know, um, people and done hair and people have asked me to do makeup. And I said, no. So luckily, I said that I'm not, you know, trained in that. I think that I've done a lot of jobs. I've art directed shoots because they haven't had an art director. And sometimes it's just me and a client and a photographer and the client has no visual background. And they're like, well, what do you think, Raquel? And I'll, I'll just sort of know what looks good. And so I end up saying, how about we put the model over here or the table there? You know, that's a better composition. And then you can put your type up here. And I don't mind that actually. It's something I can do. And style at the same time. But yeah, there are a lot of hats, there are a lot of hats. That's a surprise. Yeah. So you have to be open to hats, I think. And you can discover things about yourself and what you like if you say yes to the hats, mm-hmm. you know. And also learn it as, as you're going. Yeah. Like I learned how to cast models. Um, I worked at a magazine after Mademoiselle much later, like 10 12 years later, I worked as the fashion director of Kidstyle Magazine 
and they had a skeleton crew. And I was really excited because I was getting to style and conceive of 40 pages of kids fashion quarterly for this magazine. And it was so much fun. So I said, oh, bring on the hats. I'll just wear them all, you know. So I was doing the market work, going out in the field to the showrooms, picking the best of that season, and then dreaming up the concepts for the shoot with the art director, and then choosing photographers and then casting models. And I did ended up doing a lot of casting. You know about casting calls, I'm sure. Um, a little bit. Just, yeah. It's just... <laughs> See a hundred when you're seeing a hundred babies or toddlers, that can be quite a day. And then producing, and then you know writing copy and um, writing small articles. So it was a lot of hats. Yeah. yeah. So saying you're a stylist doesn't feel accurate at this point because I feel like you do so much more. I, I do, and now I'm doing a lot more still life styling. I'm working a lot for Bloomingdale's on a regular basis for a still life studio they have, and I also work on a uh, Turkish linen company on their their visual things for them. And I'm doing these luxurious tabletops and they sell in Gracious Home and boutiques. And it's just such a beautiful product. And I love the designer. And we just, and that's another thing too. So it just keeps opening up to different fun projects. And I learn as I go. And, you know, if I don't, I fake it till I make it. But Generally, it's all related. It's all visual and using, you know, those core teachings that I learned, you know, RISD. Are there any aspects of it that you'd like to change? Hmm, probably the unpredictable nature of it. I think I could have, it's hard to anticipate what days you're going to be booked and what your schedule is going to look like. It's a blessing and a curse. I mean, I've had it work for me because I can work whenever I want to, but then the client always doesn't want you to work then. So that's a blessing and a curse, the unpredictable nature. You have to be willing to swing with that if that's your career path or find a second job that's as flexible. I've weathered the storm. Many people just bail because of that, because it's a hard thing, you know, to be a freelancer Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, always look for work. So um, I'm very lucky now. I have a regular stint, but that's unpredictable, yeah. An unusual hat that I've worn a couple of times, when I think about the most unusual hat I've worn, is I, I was, uh, I've had two occasions where I was pulled into TV commercials. <laughs> <laughs> In front of the camera. Yes, and I did not anticipate that was going to happen one was just right on the spot, a TV commercial for a radio station, WOR. And they, were, they had a carpool situation and they decided last minute that they were one person short and that I looked perfect for the part. So the director came over and said, go get in um, a suit over there. And it happened to be a suit I brought on the rack. And they said, and uh, go to hair and makeup and we're sticking you in the car if that's okay. So I ended up doing that. Didn't have any lines. That that was a surprise. And then I did another commercial with my daughter when she was about four on Nickelodeon. So that was uh, a surprise. That was a client. And they just sort of said, you have a cute four-year-old daughter, don't you? And I said, um, I do. Can we see her picture? And I showed them. And they said, oh, you guys are perfect for a commercial we need to do in two days. Would you be, <laughs> mind doing that? <laughs> 
I was like, um, okay, uh, this will be interesting. So we brushed our teeth on national television for a Dixie Cup commercial on Nickelodeon Channel, and Nickelodeon produced it. So that was an unusual turn of events. Fun. <laughs> it was kind of fun. Yeah. Hey, but, you know, it took me 30 takes. It took her two. Uh, <laughs> and at one point, you know, she was in the green room, and I'm brushing my teeth over and over sipping from this Dixie cup and I'm in pajamas and a robe and they fixed me up for that look, the mom in the bathroom look. And the director is in the doorway of the bathroom and I see her, you know, come up to the director and she says, excuse me, can I just talk to my mom a a minute? And he said, sure. And I guess he thought I was you know, going to get a hug from her or something. She was going to run in and say, you know, mommy, I need you or something. But she just stood next to the director at the entrance of the bathroom and put her thumbs up and said, mom, that last take was great. Keep going with that. (laughs) And then she ran back to the green room. (laughs) So I had a couple more takes. Yeah, yeah. Just silly, silly, silly. But I'm not supposed to be in front of the camera. I'm very, very uncomfortable in front of cameras. I am so used to being behind the scenes and helping other people feel comfortable in front of the camera that for me to step in front of the camera has been something I'm getting used to, getting used to it. Tell us about any major obstacles that you've had to overcome. I think, you know, just knowing what direction I wanted to take with styling because it's a very vast market and go in a lot of different directions. So I think just trying to hone that in over the years has been self-discovery because, you know, I could do so many different things with my visual background as a stylist. So it's good to explore that if people are interested in the field. It's good to look at all the different things you can do. Displays, uh, fashion shows. I've done those. I've done I've done it all. I've done interiors. I've done interior decorating for people. I've done closet cleanouts. I've done I've just jumped into anything that people ask me to do because I figure, oh, I can do that. Yeah, I, I'm a visual person. So you have to think like a Renaissance person. That's been really great because I, I love changing it up and I love different visual challenges. You know, I wish I lived in the Renaissance period because they wouldn't frown on you if you had a lot of visual things that turned you on. But for me, you know, um, living today in today's world, you know, being a Renaissance woman is maybe possibly frowned upon because people say, oh, we want to label you, excuse me, we want to label you. You are a this, a that, and this is what you do. Therefore, you know, we're putting you in this box. People don't seem to get it that if you, even within styling, I think the biggest challenge is sometimes if you don't show a client the exact work that they do, they don't think you're capable of it. That's difficult, showing the right portfolio to the right people. So I always just have a few, you know, images of every kind of thing on the site that I could possibly do that I can think of in the moment. And then I say, if you don't, if I have contact with a client, I say, look, if you, what are you doing? Oh, oh, I've done that before. And I've done it for these clients. If you don't see it here, I can show you that or something closer to what you're going to be doing. And I'm happy to meet with you and have a coffee and talk about your project because that gives them confidence. A lot of times clients feel 
a little nervous if they don't see the exact job. And I mean the exact job, almost a copy of what they want to do in their heads. So it astounds me really that they wouldn't, they couldn't see that you could do a job from something quite similar (laughs) 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 or maybe even better than what they want to do. More interesting. Proudest moments, biggest disappointments. Well, I can think of biggest disappointments, not not specifically, but just in general. It's always when <laughs> you have something amazing on the rack and the client doesn't see it. Then I feel like I haven't done my job in conveying how great it can be. But sometimes you don't have a visual client and you yeah. have to deal with that. And as I've grown up with this job, I've realized not to take it personally um, if they don't see it and to have an A, a B and a C option and to like them all, <laughs> even if C is the clients and you're trying to get them to choose A, which is your first choice, show them what they asked for. Make it as attractive as you can, even if they ask for something that might be slightly horrendous. Try to make it something that you can put your name on and feel proud of. That's been a real learning experience for me. But I usually get them to A. <laughs> and, I, and, and the trick is I make them think that it's their idea to have A. That's something that I've learned. That's part of the diplomacy and the communication skills that I've developed is to make them think it's their idea. When I'm out in the stores and I see something that would be great for them, maybe has their signature colors or is their visual idea represented in a different way than they explained to me, I usually pick that up, put it together and get really excited about it because they haven't thought about it you know, in our conversation or whatever they gave me visually to start from. So usually I can get them there. I can say here, I brought you this because this is what you asked for. But I saw this and I thought it was what you were saying. But um, I've had a lot of high moments where it's just been fun to meet the people that I've worked with, you know, some celebrities or royalty or whatever. And those have been fun, you know, to have those stories. All right, now I got to ask about the celebrity, about the about the royalty, really. Oh, well, just name um, drop for me. Oh, Sarah Ferguson, Fergie, Duchess of York. I um, worked with her, so that was the only royalty. Governor Weld, who's Bill Weld, who's running now. I think he's still running for president, but he was governor of Massachusetts. That was a big one. So I went to their White House, quote unquote, in uh, Cambridge. And that was really fun to go through his closets for Boston Magazine and his wife's closets. Just really fun to meet the people. And uh, a lot of sports celebrities, like I said, with this one photographer. In the early days at Mademoiselle, just to be around Claudia Schiffer and Naomi Campbell and communicate with like really famous fashion photographers that I admired because I was a huge photography fan just you know I was a big fan of the photographers themselves I get really jazzed up about who I was working with at the magazine so that was really really fun to be fangirl for photographers yeah oh Avedon Richard Avedon working in his studio I was a stylist assistant at the magazine then that was a high point for me just being in that studio when he was alive and seeing how he worked that was the most Okay, that's my high point. That was the most amazing experience ever to see a master like that at work. I'd never, ever seen anything like that. And he was so respected by his crew. 
and everyone there. He would take a Polaroid and call everyone around him and barely lifted a finger because it came out of the camera. He would shoot it. It would come out of the camera. The Polaroid would, you know, would come out via other hands in front of him. He'd walk over to a light box and his assistants are running ahead of him. They tack it up there. He puts his hand out. A china marker's in his hand in three seconds. He sneezes. A tissue's in his hand in three seconds. <laughs> there are all these hands in front of his face. Mm-hmm. And there's so much respect there. Mm-hmm. And so in this particular case, it was a cover shoot for Mademoiselle. And I was assisting. It was my assisting days. And I was assisting Harry Kane, who was the senior fashion editor. And I just saw this at work. And she was at retirement age, so she was just there to see her friends, the hairdresser and the makeup artist, and just hang out. And, and she would just tell me what to do. But in this case, you know, he drew right on the Polaroid. He said, okay, to the model, your elbow, it goes here. And he drew right on the Polaroid. And your knee should, and she was in a cat suit, so it was a very, you know, streamlined outfit. So your knee goes here, okay? Your head turns a little bit this way. He drew right on there. And he says, okay, hairdresser. Okay. Uh, your hair goes like this. Okay. Stylist. It could be pinned. And he's, he's looking at me because he knew I was going to be on set doing the work for my boss. Okay. This has to be tighter here. It looks a little baggy here. So clamp it in tighter here. Okay. Everyone got it. Okay. Let's go and get this done. <laughs> we just did that. Like we shot maybe 12 frames then, and then we had lunch. That was it. It was amazing. And, it, and he was right. <laughs> he was right. He was, it looked so beautiful. They never used that cover because they had so many cover tries a month, but, uh, and they called them tries and they would have different photographers try every month. It was amazing to see a master like that, his eye at work. Are those the kind of things that separate a master from just a good photographer? Yes. His composition his eye for detail and composition was unparalleled. And you could see in his work, I'm a huge fan of his work. I know when someone knows how to light. I know when someone understands light. He understood light. He understood composition. Such an eye for all of it and the whole picture. I've worked with photographers who maybe they have good composition skills, but, and, you know, they frame up things beautifully, but maybe their lighting isn't great. Or maybe they don't notice that hair falling down in the model's face that might not look great later. And now there's Photoshop and all of that to, to fixes. But there wasn't then. He got it without the Photoshop. There was Cytexing or Cytexing or whatever it was called. Cytexing, that's it, in those days where it's a very expensive process. But it um, wasn't Photoshop, you know? So it was really the real deal. He had it. Knowing what you know now. Would you do anything differently? Hmm. Knowing what I know now, I wouldn't change a thing. I don't believe in regrets. I don't believe in regrets. I just believe in going with your gut every step of the way, which is what I did. Maybe I would have done some things differently, but I can't think of what they are now because I was who I was and I am who I am now because of who I was. then. So I just believe, I just believe in living in the moment and going with your gut instinct. And if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't be a stylist. Right. I'd be miserable 
in a job doing, you know, copying some schlocky sweater and making it in Hong Kong. You know, I'd be doing that. But because I just followed my gut and what I was happy doing, you know, I, I am happy with the work I do. I guess the only thing I might have done differently is to ha- have had some backup steady source of income because the ups and downs of the freelance life can take their toll on you financially. I didn't have anything else I knew how to do. I was trained in something very specific. So I had to always find ways to connect with that work. So that might be something for someone to look into if they're on that path is to, you know, have some steady, steady, flexible source of income Mm -hmm. that when combined with styling work would, you know, get you through without the worry. (laughs) So aside from what you just said, is there any other advice that you'd give to someone wanting to enter this career path? Well, you know, I'm just going to sort of reiterate, it, you know, it comes down to following your gut. I would say if you can intern with someone in an area of styling that interests you, that is a really good idea or whatever you're doing. If it's not styling, if it's something else, intern, get as much exposure to the field you're thinking of entering as possible, because that's really what your day is going to look like. You learn so much by being on the job. You know, besides, you know, getting the foundational experience that I talked about and saying yes to lots of different hats, which I I think is a good thing to actually wear a lot of hats and know it's going to be a long day and know there are a lot of long days and you have to work hard, depending on the job, of course, and the client. But just be prepared to work hard if you love it. It's not hard to do. Again, I'm just going back to make yourself happy, you know. You know, you're here, you might as well um, be in a job you love, especially if you're freelance. Everyone should love their job and be nice to each other because you've all chosen to be there. You know, no toxic people, very few toxic people actually in freelance life. That's a big discovery, big takeaway, because people choose something they love. That's why they're freelance doing it. So there's a plus because you don't have that toxicity that is often in the workplace and corporate environments or in the nine to five grind where people are very resentful against their boss or a coworker or harbor a lot of ill feelings towards each other that come out. This is my final question. And it's a little bit of a side note because I know that you do some stylus work for private individuals. You mm-hmm. do that a little bit on the side mm-hmm. at, at request. It's evolved, yes. Tell, tell me what that's like. Okay. Well, I didn't even consider it, but people kept saying, I, I could use your help. I just, you know, I'm going to this event and I don't know what to wear or my closet is a mess. I really need someone to come and help me with what I should keep and what I should get rid of. So I've actually done that for people that I've come in contact with. They've reached out over the past few years, and it's been an interesting evolution. And again, something else that relates to what I do. It's very easy for me to look at someone's closet and say, okay, I see your buying patterns here. You're buying the same black sweater, and half of them should go because they're out of style and, you know, they're threadbare. And, you know, and what is that going to go with? And let's put outfits together for you so your life is easy and easier and pared down. And 
you can feel confident knowing that I know what looks good on you and I can help you flatter your your body and your lifestyle by editing your wardrobe with you and then taking you shopping or, you know, looking at what you have every day to put on your body. And there's self-expression, which is really fun to help people with self-expression and their self-esteem. That's so gratifying. I love that. So I helped a filmmaker. He reached out to me and he said, you know, I heard you're a stylist locally. And I said, yeah, my style, you know, mostly in New York City, but sure, I live locally. And he said, well, I'm going to be on TV and I'm going to be talking about a film. And and I also want to get a girlfriend. <laughs> and I said, mm-hmm. okay, how can I help? And he said, well, you know, I don't feel that I know how to dress myself um, in an attractive way. And I'm a little lost. I said, okay, I'll come over. So I said, you know, put all your clothes on the bed and we'll look at them and see what you have. So I got there and it was piles of the same pair of jeans and they were all ironed with a crease in the front and all the shirts were ironed with creases. And, and I said, so what's your everyday look? And he said, oh, this is my everyday look. I said, oh, okay. All right. Well, we'll have to talk about this, (laughs) but it was great to, to have him open up about his life and why everything was pressed. And I learned so much about him and I brought him to the Westchester Mall, you know, the Westchester Gallery, a fancy mall. And um, we went to some stores and he tried some things on that I suggested and pushed him a little outside of his comfort zone and he got it. And, and I gave him sort of a uniform so it was simple for him. And he got it. He discovered J. Crew, I think, <laughs> and some other designers. But it was good for him to know where he could go and how he could put himself together. And he got a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Who just loves his clothes. <laughs> <laughs> Who just was, you know, pulled in and saw the real him. And he was able to express himself visually. So that was really, really great. Really great. And another side note, I had somebody reach out to me who had just gained a lot of weight. And her clothes didn't fit her. And she was feeling terrible about herself. And she had a young child and not a lot of time to think about how she should put herself together. And she had this new body and she wasn't honoring it. And she felt terrible every day. And she wanted me to come over and help her. And we went through her clothes and decided what could stay and and lovingly gave some of them away that she had no use for anymore. And we went shopping and put together a wardrobe for her that flattered her and honored her body and you know gave her the confidence in the workplace to look into other well she was she was doing a bit of career change and she suddenly had all this confidence you could you it exuded from her pores when you saw her she just looked she was beaming she looked so much happier with herself the way she was presenting herself in the world just as a mom as a professional she just looked amazing it begot good things. Thank you so much for Thank joining you us. So this much. has been Thank you. Thank wonderful. You. This has been great. You made me think about a lot of things I haven't thought about. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. To hear more and subscribe, visit our website, professionalconfessionals.com. You can find Professional Confessionals on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.